How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon, this is Cliff Schechter. I'm here filling in for Leslie Marshall yet again. I don't know why they keep asking me back. Must be a little bit crazy, uh, but I've certainly enjoyed doing it. Happy to be here with you guys. We've got uh, great guests coming up, coming up uh, a little bit later, you know, bottom half of this hour, next hour, we've got Timothy Johnson of Media Matters. Who else we got? Ryan Riley, great justice reporter at the Huffington Post, and uh, David Schuster, Emmy award-winning uh, broadcast journalist, will come on and talk to us. But uh, first... We're going to talk about politics. What the hell's going on with these polls? And uh, and uh, are we really potentially ever, oh my God, going to have a President Trump? Um, let's start. Jordan Karp, Democratic strategist, brilliant direct mail guy, good friend. I think he's on the line. Are you here, Jordan? I am. So um, without getting more creative, what the hell's going on with this election, Jordan? Um, they're called battleground states for a reason. Uh, my basic assessment is it's going to be a tight race. It's uh, it's always going to be a tight race. We live in a divided country, and um, they're battleground states, uh, and they're going to be battlegrounds. I think in the beginning of the cycle, though, if you would have said, you know, Hillary Clinton will be in striking distance in Arizona and Georgia, you'd say, we'll take it. But, um, you know, uh, Iowa's demographics are slipping away, and uh, you know, the northern part of Maine, which you know pretty well, Cliff, is uh, yeah. is, is going, too. Well, yeah, it seems like uh, that appeal to uh, the sort of very nationalistic, economically uh, nationalistic, I guess, uh, you know, reaching out to white working class voters and sort of everything Donnie says, um, everything he pretends to be, although he is, well, we won't get into that. But it seems to work in Maine. It's got some appeal in certain parts of, of the Midwest. It's got appeal even in certain parts of the West, Nevada, for example, where you've got a much higher proportion among white voters of, of lack of college education. As Donald Trump said, I think he said, I love the uneducated, something to that sort. He apparently does. Um, so not good for Iowa's demographics, as you said, though college educated whites who've been with Republicans since about Eisenhower, slowly it's been getting closer. He's losing those, which makes Georgia and Arizona more, you know, puts them back into, into play. So it really is interesting because it seems like we've got the biggest number of swing states we've had maybe since you know, Clinton 92 or so. Am I, am I right about that? I mean, there were a lot of swing states back then. Clinton won Montana in 92. Um, that is correct. So, yeah. <laughs> so He won uh, Georgia in 92 also. Yeah, and Louisiana, obviously Arkansas, sort of all the way up. Um, but I think that it, you're right. That it's, it's a campaign, it's a Republican campaign that will only work for a, it's got a shelf life, a, 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 an ex, you know, an extinction date. Um, it's not a, Death and taxes not a map kind of or a message that, that'll last for many more cycles. 
the debt, I mean, if we go forward in four, eight, 12 years, and you have literally the death of the country club Republican, the, you know, white, affluent, college-educated uh, person who used to vote Republican but is now self-identifying as an independent or even a, you know, what we call a soft Democrat, then that really flips not only the Electoral College but a lot of the, uh, a lot of the math uh, down-ballot Senate and House races on their, on their head. Yeah, I mean, they're even. I, look, I, I don't ever believe in any one poll. I like to get a bunch of them, but there was one that uh, showed that uh, Texas was only a six or seven point race. Um, and obviously, yeah. you, go ahead. It, no, I was just going to say it's just tough to Texas. You know, thirty-eight electoral votes. It's you say, well, Texas, California, New York, Pennsylvania, Florida. You got you know one hundred and seventy electoral votes right there. But if you're going to win Texas, you have a better shot at winning a place like Missouri. Um, with, oh yeah, I don't mean this time. Yeah. I just mean, but what you're talking about in the future, I mean, that's sort of, especially if Georgia has already become a swing state, North Carolina is sort of slightly leans Democratic or certainly a swing state. Like their electoral anchor at this point is, is Texas. And then after Texas, the only sure thing they've got is you know, you're at like 10 electoral votes, right? I mean, yeah. What, I mean, what's the, 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 the issue is the issue is in Texas, you have it's so cash intensive. Houston media market, Dallas media market, it's such a big state. It spans two time zones, El Paso's and the, and the mountain time zone. It's just, such a bi- it's just such an expensive state to do business in. It's just being possible. Uh, yeah, well, the, no doubt about how expensive it is there and, and the money it takes. I mean, it's, it's – so, I mean, so we're seeing more swing states. I guess, look, for most of us, it's not – we're not shocked. There have been two, two uh, terms of Democrats, as you, point, as, you, know, as you pointed out. A lot of polarization. Um, we're in a very sort of, you know, pre-Civil uh, War feeling time right now where people are, are you know, there's a huge split. More, on, more, I would say, on the left. There are more people on the left, but there's a huge split over social issues, certainly. The thing is, though, I mean, even with all of that going on, I would have said, you know, if Marco Rubio were their nominee or Jeb Bush or anybody sort of slightly acceptable, um, acceptable in my Verbiage meaning not completely crazy, um, but but Donald Trump. I mean, I think that's the thing that has us shocked. It's not really that it's a Republican because I would think the the fundamentals in some ways would almost uh, say that a Republican should be elected this time around. If it was somebody who had a more at least moderate image, it's that this guy. It seems like the press can't even, and we're going to talk more about that with David Schuster later. But it seems like the press can't even handle how to cover this guy because, you know, at what point is it sort of we're just reporting the same stuff day in and day out because this guy has scandals every single day? Well, not, but it's not just that. It's what do voters pay attention to, I think, is, you know, the media side is the media side, but on, in terms of the campaign side, in terms of how you actually, the mechanics of winning an election, what, what are swing voters, what are un, truly undecided voters, what, what are they grasping onto and what are they thinking about? Which is, the, which is, I think, a challenge for for a free press, and also a challenge for the Democratic nominee, and, and also the you know the infrastructure of the entire Democratic Party. Frankly, do you feel like this has anything to do at all with? I mean, what's your feeling about Hillary Clinton as a candidate? A lot of this stuff to me feels like um, usual. He said, she said, press coverage, and yes, she's done some things that aren't aren't so smart, and she's been very at times has you know she didn't share about the health. Uh, as quickly as maybe she should have, but at the same time, aren't those kind of normal candidate things that candidates do on, like, let's say, encouraging a, a former 70-year adversary to hack into your opponent's uh, 
emails or let's say we find out that your foundation has become basically a money laundering vehicle since 2008 when you haven't put a dollar in there. You bring in other people's money, you give it to places, and then you claim it's, you did it. Um, you know, you, you took 150000 This is the one I don't get at all because having been there on 9-11, by there I mean seeing the second plane come in, I was so close, and hearing the explosion up close. Knowing that this guy took $150,000 in money meant for small business people, I, I, don't, I can't fathom how these things about Hillary Clinton are bigger stories than that. It's the merging of entertainment and news and politics. It's been happening for, you know, look, Ronald Reagan, who was a B-movie actor, became president. It's the, it's the merging of celebrity and politics. He was damn good acting with that monkey, though. Uh, I'm a, I, I, I've heard about that. I've never seen the movie, though. Have you? <laughs> Scenes, not the whole thing. So, yeah, oh, okay. you're lucky. Continue. I'm, sorry. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. <laughs> Well, they've got lots of quality B actors. It's true. Like, you know, you're Fred Thompson's and uh, they don't ever have the people, I mean, almost ever, that generally were the stars. You know, you get your gopher here and you get your, you know, Sonny from Sonny and Cher. But you, you don't tend to have like the, you know, the, the Clooney, I guess I would say. Although he's going to run for governor of California. Is he? If that's the rumor. He could win it, I'm sure, pretty easily. Um Although, yeah, I mean, Schwarzenegger, you could say. There's one. I mean, you say what you want about Schwarzenegger. He, he was a big star, you know, I mean, when he ran, certainly. So maybe yeah. they, they got somebody who was semi-A-list there. Absolutely. Um, so how do you think this whole, you know, it was a fun, nice little distraction here, but how do you think this whole thing shakes out? Uh, she still end? has a structural advantage, and I, and I believe she'll uh, – I think the whole race will come back around. I really do. I think when – it's very easy to tell a pollster – not to be one of these unskewed people, but it's very easy to tell a pollster, yeah, I'm going to vote for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein because, you know, Hillary Clinton is is not my favorite person in the world. But as the race gets closer and people really do start to examine things that are going on, I, I think Hillary will uh, will end up winning and by a by a handsome margin, to be honest with you. I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, Donald Trump has, I think, one field office in Florida, and uh, early voting starts in a couple couple weeks. And so, you know, that Let's, mobilization um, effort is, is difficult and, and time-consuming. And yeah, We have a break, Jordan, time. that we need to get to, but let's talk more about targeting uh, what you're saying right now and turnout and, and what the difference might be on the ground um, in these states. We'll be right back, folks. Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Good afternoon, folks. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm here filling in for Leslie Marshall. You have found the Leslie Marshall Show. Coming up a little bit at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to Timothy Johnson of Media Matters about uh, why the NRA is so crazy. We'll find out. Um... Many reasons for that. Right now we're talking to Jordan Karp, and we're trying to figure out what is going on with this election. Jordan's a Democratic strategist and uh, quite a talented one at that. Jordan, are you here? I am. Thanks for having me back. Hey, man. We don't just kick you off in the middle. You got good stuff to say, dude. I try. Um, 
<laughs> so, okay. Structurally, was going to be a close election, even if they elect, if they put this crazy loon up, right? Um, there are there are more swing states. We've talked about that, but yet still, you know, you talked about the demographics. So, a place like Iowa, which I, got, I have to admit, I always wondered how that remained such a strong democratic state. No criticism, but uh, has a large rural working working white population. It seems like uh, Trump may have unlocked. Uh, the door to their hearts. You're seeing it in Maine's second district. Maine is a state for anyone listening, like Nebraska, um, that they they give uh, separate individual electoral votes for their congressional districts, separate from winning the state overall. So he could pick up an electoral vote in in, in the, the northern part of Maine, which is a much more working white area. It seems not so far to have have translated into his being able to get it close or very close in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. But it is, as somebody who lives in Ohio, I can tell you the three C's as we call them here, Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and in their suburbs, very different than some of the other more rural areas that Trump really seems to have attracted. And so now I've seen the third poll in a row, and I don't just believe one or two, but the third one in a row showing Trump winning here. At some point, no matter what my personal biases are, I – I listen to research. So I have to believe at this point that at the very best, it may be tied here at the worst, you know, Trump may actually have a slight two, one, two point advantage here. You think Hillary is able to pull out Ohio considering, uh, nobody since what I think, uh, JFK is the only one this century to lose Ohio and, uh, and, and win the presidency. That's he got right. some help in cook County too. Yeah. Well, that's Illinois. Um, the, I, I just think that it all depends on the sample, the methodology of the polls, too. And again, not to sound like one of those unskew guys from, from four years ago, but you're, the demographics of the nation are moving towards a much friendlier environment for Democrats. There's a reason that George W. Bush tried to reach out to the Hispanic community and did pretty well um, to try to set the path for a, a quote-unquote friendlier Republican Party to people who don't didn't look like him or grew up like him. So you're assuming some of these polls are assuming are assuming a whiter uh, electorate than than historically has come out, uh, a less democratic electorate that's historically come out. Um, so again, some of these polls may be um, maybe looking missing for the click mark a little bit and eyeballs. <clears throat> I'm and hoping that rather than 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 actual pieces of research. And that's what I'm hoping. I and mean, look, we all have to remember, like, uh, I think there was a poll literally a month ahead of the election in 12 that had Romney up by seven. There certainly were individual polls in Florida and Ohio. Florida actually ended up being really close. I mean, I think Trump, I think uh, Obama beat Romney by less than a point. But that he was did, the but, ground game. That's a classic well, case of – go ahead. No, absolutely. So, you know, on election day, Barack Obama was up by 0.7% in terms of an aggregate of all the polls. They were tied – in Florida, um, I think that it's very easy to forget what it was like four years, eight years. Eight years ago this week, John McCain had a four-point lead over Barack Obama. So it's yeah. really easy to forget. And those were electoral landslides. So I think it's really easy to sort of say, well, I can't believe it's this close. Well, it's this close, but it's also September 15th. Are there things to be worried about? Absolutely. Do we have a, a somewhat of a flawed candidate? Absolutely. But at, at the end of the day, the, the structural advantage are the Democrats. Um, the actual um, advantage of, of putting a, an actual campaign together and not a reality TV show in terms of 
field offices, identifying voters, pulling them out, that advantages with the Hillary Clinton campaign as well. So I think that at the end of the day, we'd still rather be us than them, frankly. I think you're actually you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we've heard about this. Hillary has, has employed the the Obama field team and even has a, a new data guru. They're, they've taken a lot of this kind of stuff, this cutting edge stuff, even that much further um, to where they're they're planning out their TV ads. From what I was reading, literally by this guy's algorithms, um, as well as where they're going to knock on doors, where they need, how they set up their field offices. You pointed out when we when we went to the break before how few they have in Florida. They just opened their first actual real one in in Hamilton County here, which is probably the, one of the, the two key swing counties in this state, in Ohio. And it, it's like some office somewhere, you know, where there's like two people, right? I mean, Hillary in Hamilton County alone, I think, has like eight or nine. So I, I do have to believe all of the work they've done, it's proven in the past with Obama. It proved it with Bush when he, they were doing all this in 2004, and before that, that they, the, the, the digital work, um, the fact that you've had a team in place for a long time. And people need to remember, as you pointed out, if Obama goes in up by 0.7 but wins by, I think, three and a half points he won by in the end, um, a lot of that's got to be field. You know, it, it, it does. So, I mean, you have to believe that if she if she's keeping it in, in most of the, the national polls that are coming out are showing her still a couple points up two, three. If that ends up being, if she goes into election two points up, she probably wins by five, six, maybe more, because you're not even talking now about a great Hillary team against a sort of, or a great Trump, uh, bleh, excuse me, great Obama team versus a sort of lackadaisical Romney team. You're talking about a, a, a great Hillary team against an almost non-existent Trump team. I mean, how, can they, you you know some stuff about this, Jordan. I know this is not your main area, but can, can Trump at this point even get a field team up and running at this point that can do much good before election day? It's, it's very difficult. It is capital intensive, first of all. It's talent intensive, second of all. And it is, it is grueling work that takes months. So, no, I don't think in 55 days or whatever we have left that, that he can really put – he can put a dent in some places, but not, not, uh, not to where I, I think they need to be. I mean, Romney spent a lot of time and money and energy and resources putting together a real campaign. Um, the, you know, Trump has outsourced this. Uh, and I use that term on purpose, um, to the <laughs> RNC. And the RNC has got to worry about, you know, everything from, um, you know, state Senate campaigns to, to the presidential race. They're not there to identify Trump voters and pull them out. Uh, and that's really the key. And I think, you know, if you look at the Portman race or you look at the Burr race in North Carolina, it, you even look at Indiana and the Senate race, I think that, you know, the RNC may be more focused on, down ballot races and if you know if trump sort of does better great but that's not really where they're going to be spending a lot of their their uh their resources that's really interesting yeah i i'm very intrigued by that race in north carolina where burr seems to be one of the laziest candidates of all time you know sitting on this money and now the the democratic super PACs are getting in to help ross out there and i i think that that's a very winnable race i mean i'm interested to see we've got about one minute left i'll just say quickly you can give me what your prediction is, but I, I do. I think in the end with field, and I think the race will come back around. It goes through phases. There's debates. I have a hard, I mean, there'll be expectations will be low, but I think she's going to win, and she's going to win it pretty big. I mean, you know, 330 or so electoral votes. We'll see. Thanks for being on, Jordan. Thanks for Great having you, buddy.
Leslie Marshall. Not left, not right, just real talk. Good afternoon. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm here filling in for Leslie Marshall on the wonderful, fantastic Leslie Marshall show. Uh, had a great half hour talking to Jordan Carp about this crazy election. But you can't really finish talking about crazy if you don't discuss the National Rifle Association. So I have the person here, I think, who can best help me discuss why they're so crazy and what kind of crazy they're up to. We have Timothy Johnson, who is with Media Matters for America. And you should feel for him, folks, because he regularly chronicles the lunacy that is the NRA. Timothy, you're with me, my friend. I am. Thanks for that. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. You deserve that. And, you know couple cold beers, a massage, whatever else it is that can keep you mentally and physically fit after uh, having to read things about Wayne LaPierre probably almost every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could definitely use that, Yeah, especially uh, as things are kind of heating up closer to the election here. We may have to do we'll, – we'll see about it. Maybe on the show here we'll do a Kickstarter for your mental health. Um, but I digress. I want to talk about – you've had some great stories. I think this should be a regular – feature we may do this whenever i'm invited on the guest host here because i think some people don't understand that that you know since really 1977 when the nra lost its mind had a revolt right here where i'm sitting in cincinnati overthrew their more moderate leaders and the crazy people took over you can almost directly trace sort of the paranoid conspiracy theories they embraced the way they left the sort of more moderate or traditionally conservative old line you know republicanism you could call it and, and embrace the sort of bunker mentality, quite literally, of militias and paranoia and racism. And, uh, and, and so it's not a shock that we got Donald Trump, is it, at this point, considering the kinds of things their board members, Ted Nugent, Wayne LaPierre, the head of the group, and others have been saying for a while. I mean, do you see sort of that direct connection between how we got from, from the NRA starting to radicalize parts of the right-wing base and how we end up with Donald Trump? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, I think one fact that's not known uh, a lot, back in the 70s, the NRA was considering moving their offices out of the D.C. area and moving them out west because they wanted to focus on things like the shooting sports, uh, things like that. But as you said, they became this very, very radical organization. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of Trump, I think there's kind of a lot of overlap. And it's very interesting that if you look at Trump's background on the gun issue, it's kind of mixed. He's actually, he said he supported a assault and span at one point. Now, if you look right. at his views, they're totally extreme. But in terms of, like, the other issues, it's actually almost a perfect match with the NRA, which, as you mentioned, has a board of directors and members of leadership who are, have said, you know, very xenophobic things, uh, you know, anti-gay, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, things of that nature. In terms of kind of the big culture war and what is the extremist side of it, the NRA and Trump actually match up quite well, and that might be one explanation for why the NRA endorsed Trump earlier than uh, any other presidential candidate they've ever done. You know, for, for Romney, they actually waited until October because I think they weren't uh, too hot on him. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I, so obviously I agree with that. I, I, I think, uh, and you certainly nailed it in terms of their domestic, the racism, the xenophobia, the, oh, the misogyny, which is just out of this world. But they've also, quite interestingly, um, they've, got a, they've had a penchant for supporting foreign dictators, too, which wasn't really something, you know, I mean, there were, look, we've always supported some dictators, sadly, if it was in the national interest of the U.S., I'm talking about, though, people not because it's in the national interest of the U.S., but straight-out strong men just because you admire them because they kill their own people. That makes them a leader. 
I mean, you know, doesn't the, doesn't the, uh, the NRA have a history of supporting uh, apartheid regimes and others in, in obviously all over the world that, that essentially are made up of the kind of strongmen that, you know, like Putin and, and Saddam Hussein and others that, uh, you know, Trump seems to have almost a love affair with? You know, I've, I've never drawn that connection, but you're absolutely right. Uh, at, at a previous job, I did a lot of research on this, and there are members of NRA leadership. Uh, I'm talking about Robert Brown, who uh, heads up Soldier of Fortune magazine, uh, Grover Norquist, uh, a few other people who in the 80s kind of lined up with, I guess you could, their excuse would be that they were so-called anti-communist groups, and we're talking about uh, countries in South America and Africa. And, you know, what actually happens is that they ended up lining up with, uh, you know, governments or organizations that were actually doing extremely terrible things, you know, human rights abuses, things like that. Um, and, yes, you know, apartheid, things like that. You know, actually, uh, you know, Ted Nugent, um, he, he wasn't involved other than his horrible commentary, but he actually defended the apartheid and said, you know, all men are not created equal. So, yeah, you know, I, I never thought of that before you just brought it up. But that's certainly true that, uh, you know, if you look at Trump and Russia, you could, uh, you know, also draw something uh, with the NRA and some of its leadership in these kind of sordid past associations. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, Ted Nugent, I think every time he talks, makes his own argument that not all men and women are created. Um, not based on race, however, <laughs> based on certain other factors like ignorance and really bad haircuts. But we'll get to that. Um, or maybe not. I want to talk, you, you've had some great uh, material that you've written about recently on how the NRA is, is handling this election cycle and trying through their media organs and their paid media, uh, you know, campaign commercials and, and online to lie and, and try to, to, to undermine, for example, um, we, well, we talked before about Deborah Ross, who's the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina in a tight race the incumbent Richard Burr. If I'm correct, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, the NRA has already spent about $3 million defending Burr, uh, and they're attacking her uh, for being weak on, on self-defense, not wanting to allow people to defend themselves. But let me let you, as you wrote the piece, tell people what the bill she voted against was actually about. Sure. So uh, at Media Matters, uh, we have been uh, taking, uh, doing some fact-checking on the NRA's advertisements this election cycle. And uh, essentially what we have found is that almost every NRA ad so far has at least one blatant falsehood in it. And this is one of them. This is an ad that dropped yesterday, as you said, in the North Carolina race. And uh, the, the claim being made here is that Deborah Ross, uh, quote, opposed your right to self-defense. And then so in the ad, as political ads normally do, uh, they, they list a bill. And the bill is uh, HB 650 uh, from 2011. So, you know, we look up, H we look up the bill, and uh, what we find is that it actually has nothing to do about what is the meaning of self-defense or, you know, if you vote against this bill, you oppose gun ownership for self-defense. So what this bill actually was is it was a piece of omnibus legislation, and it, it had various provisions throughout it that loosened North Carolina's gun laws. And uh, I think most odiously uh, was one provision where it said that domestic abusers could own firearms, uh, which is quite shocking. You know, the law, I think, before this was passed 
you know, uh, said, I think with reason, that domestic abusers, people subject to protection orders, cannot own or possess firearms. Well, this bill actually updated that language so they can own firearms. I think that the thought is, is that they can't be in their possession at the time, but, you know, they can be with someone else. But, so it, you know, the, the upshot of that, though, is that you're increasing domestic abusers' easy access to a firearm. So the NRA here is saying uh, she opposes your right to self-defense. Well, I, actually what she did seems a lot more sensible, which is voting against a bill that makes it easier for domestic abusers to get a gun. <laughs> so, yes, that's the taking away the right to self-defense. What she really did was take a look at people the courts determined who had to have protective orders to keep them away from harming their spouses or, or others. And, um, and the, the NRA apparently said, and, and those who believe in what they believe said, nah, I think those guys really should have guns because they want to abuse people, and that seems like their right to do with a firearm. So she voted against that, and that somehow makes her a bad person. Um, I right. run into this. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, it, I, I just add that the bill has other provisions in it. And if you're thinking about does this have anything to do with self-defense, one of them uh, made it easier for North Carolina residents to buy fully automatic machine guns, uh, short-barreled rifles, and silencers, which are regulated under federal law because of how dangerous they are. So if you think self-defense uh, involves, you know, the need to get a machine gun even easier – you know, you're crazy. It doesn't. So, yeah, the ad is, you know, it, it, it's uh, totally premised on a falsehood. Oh, so much premised on falsehoods with the NRA. They're so, you know, they play so quick with the, with the facts. So that's, you know, that's one example. And I talked about the tremendous misogyny that sort of, I think, I almost feel like that's the glue that holds the movement together in some ways. Um, and, and, you know, so t saying somebody is a domestic abuser should have to take away their guns is something the NRA, I mean, to them, that's not something that, that, that means your guns should be taken away. Perhaps maybe you should have more guns in their view. Um, they, they've also now lied about there's so what for history for people, the state of Washington two years ago passed uh, a ballot measure that in instituted universal background checks in Washington state because we haven't been able to do it in Washington, D.C., so some state legislatures have done it, Delaware, Oregon. You've had some, some ballot measures like this one. And now we've got two of them in Nevada and Maine. And in Maine, they're flat-out lying about what the ballot measure would do, aren't they? Because, you know, without lying, what would they have? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, this is something that's happened, uh, been going on for several years. Uh, states have been doing background check ballot initiatives and often the legislation has followed a similar pattern where essentially, so under, under federal law, if you're a licensed firearm dealer, you have to run background checks on your customers. But if you say that you're not a dealer, you don't have to run uh, a check on someone you sell a gun. And I think it's about 32 states still. And that's kind of what's known as a private sale or the gun show loophole. So several states have done a ballot initiative to kind of close this loophole. And uh, the way the legislation usually works is that, you know, most, most sales – uh, you will, if, if you're two private sellers and a private buyer, you have to go to a gun store or somewhere else where they can run basically the normal background check that you, that you get when you go to a gun store. And usually these, these pieces of legislation have exceptions to them. And, that, and the exception is usually, well, you know, if I want to 
you know, sell my brother a gun, it seems kind of silly that I might have to go to a gun store and have a background check. So there's usually exceptions, and they cover things like family members. Uh, they cover things like if someone's in immediate danger and they need a gun. Um, and uh, they also cover usually temporary transfers where the transfer is not permanent with some rules. And so the NRA's playbook is to go into these exceptions and make up all sorts of lies about how the exceptions don't actually work or things like that. So uh, what we have in Maine is uh, the NRA's Institute for Legislative Action has started running a lot of ads, and what they're claiming is that uh, it's called Question 3 in Maine, and they're claiming that this ballot initiative, which just you know expands background checks, if it was passed, uh, if you loaned your neighbor a shotgun and you, you both didn't go to a gun store and have a background check, that uh, you would go to jail. And that's just that's very sweeping and misleading uh, because, actually, if you look at the actual language of the law, uh, one of the exceptions is for temporary transfers. And basically, uh, you know, if and you'd have to neighbor, know that they were going to you had to have to really suspect they're going to commit a crime. Right. If they're to not give it to them. Tim, one second. Right. I want to continue on this, uh, but we have to take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back and we'll keep going with it. Thank you. Uh, Leslie Marshall, straight and on point. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Keep Leslie in your pocket. Go to lesliemarshallshow.com forward slash members. Good afternoon. Once again, this is Cliff Schechter. I'm doing the last two afternoon hours of the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for listening. On right now with us, we have Timothy Johnson, who tracks the NRA for a living, uh, with the good, the bad, mostly bad, very ugly, uh, at Media Matters for America. Tim, ooh, I was going to call you Tim. Timothy, you with me, my friend? Yes. Um, where were we? We were talking about, in Maine, the, the lies they're telling in terms of, um, you know, that you can't, there can't be an immediate transfer of a gun or you have to go get a background check to a family member or to some, although I'm not sure how I even feel about that, but that's a whole other topic. So they're, they're, they're making up this, this sort of, they're lying is what they're doing and saying that, that you, you have to go do a background check before and after when the truth is, if I'm correct in my reading of it, and you can tell me if I'm incorrect uh, that if you're not planning, if you don't know someone is planning on, on committing a crime with that weapon, so as long as you have no reason to believe that, you can temporarily make that transfer to a friend um, if you're hunting or, you know, if, if, you, if they need an emergency, and, and you would not be held liable for that. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Also, yeah, there's, there's actually even more circumstances than that where it's allowed. Yeah, like in a, in a nutshell, I guess what's happening here is that there are exceptions to uh, the background check requirement. And the NRA lies about those exceptions to suggest that if you engage in basically normal activity that people who are enthusiasts of guns might engage in, that you will go to jail. So I guess it's a good way to gin up support, say, you know, oh, that sounds like something I would do. Now I'm going to oppose this. But, you know, they're intentionally misreading what the actual language uh, of the law is. And uh, in particular on this main ad, I think one thing that's also interesting that's uh, a little bit more out of the weeds than, uh, you know, the NRA's lie about it is that they're running this ad and uh, they're basically saying in the ad that, you know, outside forces are trying to tell Mainers what to do. And they show this big picture that's supposed to be an outline of Maine, but they've completely botched it 
and uh, it's not how the state is actually shaped. And uh, a lot of people were talking about this online yesterday, saying, well, you know, NRA is you know, complaining about outside forces. They don't even know uh, what Maine looks like. So they put up a shape so they've got basically a different state up there or, or at least a different body of land that's supposed to be Maine? So it's kind of like Maine, but they have cut off the western half of it. You know, it, you know, it looks a little bit like it. And uh, actually, the reason that this was pointed out is that the NRA in a different, uh, I think it was like a, an Internet ad or something, did this a few months ago. And, uh, you know, people who actually live in Maine look at these things and they say, that's not what the state actually looks like. And actually, one kind of another amusing thing in the ad uh, is that they said, you know, New Yorkers are trying to tell Mainers how to live. And they also had an image of New York, uh, but it was actually the San Francisco skyline. So, you know, people found that amusing, too. But, you know, I, I think the bottom line is that they're trying to do this, you know, very folksy ad about if you engage in just normal gun behaviors, you're going to get arrested. You know, number one, they're lying. Number two, you know, they're, they're making this ad outside of Maine, and they don't even know what the state looks like. Yeah, number two, they seem to have the competence of the Trump campaign when it comes to these things. Um, that's very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, look, all polls show in every state, no matter how rural, I don't, I haven't seen one that had lower than 80 per, 80% support for background checks. Universal, universally, a lot of polls show it's north of 90%. Um, in an off year when there don't, doesn't tend to be as good turnout um, among constituencies that vote Democratic in Washington in, in a midterm year in 2014, one background checks won with 60% of the vote, and the NRA also put a fake measure on the ballot to try to trick people, and I'm sure they did trick some people. Right. So you've got that. Um, you know, so it, it, it would look good for Maine. So really the only question left, and I think I know what my theory is on this, but why do you suppose, why do you think the NRA is against background checks? What, what would they, ha why would they have a problem with them? Right, so, you know, you can scratch your head um, because, it, you know, I, I've yet to see a good policy argument against uh, requiring background checks for most gun sales. If someone can come up with it, you know, they, they might as well make it because I, I really haven't heard it. So you have to lie about it, uh, you know, which is what the NRA does. And then, you know, why do they do it? Uh, I think they've just been pushed that far. You know, the NRA used to support background checks. Uh, you had, you know, there's video of Wayne LaPierre saying we don't, uh, you know, we shouldn't have the gun show loophole. Uh, after oh, after uh, Columbine, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, and I guess my personal theory, they've just been pushed so far. You know, they're so extreme. If they were to compromise at all on background checks, their base would go crazy, uh, which is, you know, not perhaps that many people, but, you know, very loud. Uh, you know, Gunners of America, which is more extreme than them, they would come after them. You know, they've kind of maybe pushed themselves in this untenable position. And, uh, you know, it, it also is helpful for them when they want everything to be a conspiracy theory that eventually leads to uh, the government coming and rounding up all the firearms and confiscating them, you know, you can uh, fold background checks into that, so it's helpful in that regard. But, yeah, I don't think it's a sustainable position from them, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out over the next few years. Yeah, especially with more ballot measures coming. My theory, I think that's part of it. My, my additional theory on this is that they know quite well from their numbers that that the the people who they truly represent, which aren't their members anymore, but the but the firearms manufacturers, you know, arms dealers essentially who give them a lot of money, have, have there's a vibrant criminal market out there they make a lot of money from, and so if you can if you don't make these gun dealers keep inventories, 
as they refuse to. Oops, some guns fall out of a truck, right? You don't stop people from, from uh, straw purchasing, which is essentially uh, you know, a way of somebody who can't get a gun can buy a gun through somebody else. If you don't have laws turning that into a, a federal crime, which they've refused to do also, and you don't do background checks at gun shows, well, then there's a lot of easy ways for guns uh, that might not otherwise be sold to make their way to, to you know, gun shows or, or online or whatever and be sold so they can profit still from, from people who wouldn't be able to pass a background check. That's, that's some of my theory behind it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, one little interesting thing about that is that, you know, if you think about this background check legislation, it actually would be good for, like, a mom-and-pop gun store, right? Because, you know, the main legislation, like all the legislation, says that you can charge a reasonable fee. And, you know, it's not a lot of money, but, you know, it could be a, a little nice thing. But then to your point, yeah, when you look at, you know, what's the step above there, the manufacturers and the distributors, a, as you said, they certainly benefit from kind of a free flow that puts yep. so many guns out there where hey, if you had a, you know, the we gotta system. Go. Right. Tim, I just wanted, I didn't want to interrupt you, but we gotta, we got to go at the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us and for enlightening everybody on who the NRA is. Great to have you. Great. Thanks for having me. Sure. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Politics with Jordan Hart. We, uh, we went into the lunacy that is the NRA with Timothy Johnson. Now we change up a little bit, talk about crime and justice. We're lucky enough to have Ryan Riley here, who is the senior justice reporter at the Huffington Post. Ryan, are you with me? Thanks for having me. Hey, how are you, man? Doing pretty well. Yeah, well, you've been, uh, you are doing pretty well. You've been reporting a lot of interesting things lately, I would say. Um, oh, thanks. Ever since, uh, well, how long are we going back now when you were, when you were uh, detained, we'll call it, in Ferguson? Yeah, two plus years now. I guess, um, yeah, August of uh, 2014. That's kind of like your cred now, right? <laughs> a little bit. It helped. Uh, it helped with swishing on the ground, certainly. Well, I am interested to actually talk and see if see what you think has changed since then. I want to start. I mean, this is a, obviously a topic close to my heart, um, and and uh, I'll fully disclose I'm on the board of the Ohio Innocence Project. I've been lucky to be involved with that group to do some amazing work. And you broke the story in the Huffington Post uh, just, well, where were we, two days ago, yesterday, two days ago, that, um, that we received uh, a, a record-breaking gift of, of $15 million from one of our benefactors, Dick Rosenthal. Um, what are your thoughts? I appreciate the story. It's fantastic. What are your thoughts on, you know, the innocence movement in general? You think with culture, you know, it's been portrayed in uh, now um, you've got cereal and you've had making of a murderer and... In other places, do you think that, that it, it maybe we're, we're looking at uh, that this being a growing phenomenon? Yeah, well, that was what was interesting, sort of, with uh, with the director there, Mark, um, speaking about um, sort of the changes in how people have sort of perceived um, their work in the past couple of years, which he sort of credited to shows like Making a Murder and Serial. And, um, you know, said that when he we used to go out and speak to different groups, 
a little tough to connect with the public potentially um, on certain certain topics, or they didn't get it. If people haven't been, you know, exposed to the system necessarily, they it just wouldn't be something that computes to them. They sort of might assume that the system, you know, works because you know um, maybe that's, that's something they're not that well informed about or just didn't have any personal experience himself. Um, but he said that, you know, shows like shows like, you know, Making a Murder and podcasts like Serial have really sort of changed up that perception. Um, and when he goes to speak now, he says, you know, that they're sort of nodding along and people find that uh, extremely helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, with the, with the scale of this gift, was, it was pretty incredible. Um, I mean, in terms of just, you know, the, like, <laughs> Growing the endowment by several multitudes, um, sort of overnight, was, uh, was was really significant there, and I think it'll be really interesting to see um, what other areas the Ohio Innocence Project uh, is going to end up getting into. Um, you know, and I think that sort of is, and you probably would know, but this is still sort of in the planning in terms of you know um, what they're going to what they're going to do with it in terms of, you know, obviously but it's it's going to guarantee sort of that the project is going to continue for the foreseeable um, future, certainly, and um, we'll potentially be able to help a lot more people. Yeah, I mean, look, I know the the enormity of it, just having been around it, um, you know, there are lawyers there who, who, some of them graduated from the program at the University of Cincinnati where it's housed, um, who accept a lot less money, and these are people that, as you can imagine, some of whom have, have debt from law school, not to mention college, and they accept a lot less money to come and do this because they care so much. Um, you know, it's not a cheap program to run. I mean, it's certainly there's a lot of involvement. Students are involved on that level uh, in doing research, and but, I mean, I think it will be hugely helpful. And, I, you know, look, I, I happen to be involved with the Ohio one, but I feel passionately about the cause, so... I'm excited. I'm hoping that, you know, that spurs folks in New York and, and, you know, California and Illinois and wherever, Utah, Mississippi, wherever it may be, um, to, to, you know, where there are philanthropists who can give large gifts and realize that, you know, here, the one in Ohio, for example, we've, we've freed now, we've exonerated 24 people, including, you know, including uh, the longest serving, you know, uh, sadly, Ricky Jackson, who was in prison for 39 years. And we found, you know, he was on death row at one point, too. That death, mm. The death penalty hadn't been found unconstitutional in Ohio as it was in the late 70s, so all the guys were given life. Instead, uh, he would have been executed, most likely, as would the two others besides him who were charged with this crime. Um, let, me, let me take it to, to somewhere else because, you know, you brought up a very important point, which is I don't think a lot of people do know. I mean, we want to look. We grow up. We we learn in school. And we think the American system, and I still do think it's it's you know, if not the best, one of the best systems out there. But but there's long been a lot of you know corruption in the system. There's there there is virulent racism in certain parts, and so you want to believe that it's justice, right? And whatever happens is what should happen. But when you get close to it, I'm kind of interested in your feeling on that. After maybe after the, what happened with you in Ferguson, maybe a, a different time, you start seeing that. It's not to say there aren't great people that work within the system and there aren't those that are public servants. And, but, I mean, there is a lot that needs to be fixed. Am I correct about that? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, I think that once when people see sort of stuff up close, it definitely really helps um, sort of crystallize it. I mean, you know, for me, I don't think that I was, you know, ignorant of um, how things worked. It's, you know, issues I've been covering for a number of years before, but, I mean, it certainly expanded it beyond uh, a lot um, of what I sort of had been able to comprehend uh, previously, just, you know, sort of in having a, a little dose of what it's like to go through an experience like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that... Um, I think that that's sort of the point of a lot of the movement that we've seen in the past 
couple of years just in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement is just you know opening up people's eyes and making people realize the, sort of the problems we have is a really big component um, of that. And just awareness um, is sort of the first step, I think, and sort of acknowledging the problem obviously is sort of the first step in this uh, uh, this process. Just getting people to say, yeah, there actually you know is a problem here, and sort of get that acknowledged on a broader level um, is, is essential. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've seen a lot more media coverage of uh, issues with the criminal justice system in general um, since uh, since Ferguson, really. No, I mean, you're performing a really vital role there. I'm, I'm interested in, so from so not just personal experience, but from what you're seeing going on, there have been some cases where prosecutors who have let police off, up it happened up in the Cleveland area, have lost. Other cases where, you know, like in Staten Island, you get somebody who ends up getting a promotion to Congress um, do you think overall, you know, the, the, on the on balance, do you think all this attention is is helpful? Is maybe leading to to um, you know reform within some of these police departments? To a certain extent, but I think the the problem is because we have a basically a very localized um, system of law enforcement, and things are very different in, in different areas, right? Um, I mean, so just the way just generally the system works. And the idea, you know, the one thing that we've been covering closely recently um, is jail deaths. Um, so in that, I'll just use that sort of as an example. Um, we covered a story um, that I, I, some, of, some people might remember that about a year ago there was a 24-year-old uh, who was accused of stealing about $5 worth of goods from a convenience store who um, spent nearly four months um, in a jail um, in Virginia, um, Hampton Roads Regional Jail, and ended up uh, dying um, of starvation um, and contributing to his death there. Um, and that sort of brought a lot of attention to the facility. Um, but what we found when we looked at uh, jail deaths nationwide that we actually uncovered a couple, a few other deaths that had taken place at the facility, uh, including um, a man who was there for, and it'd be his original charge was related to smoking pot in his home. Um, he ended up getting, uh, because he couldn't, he ended up getting evicted from his apartment later on and had missed a court date because he um, had had a stroke. And um, when they came, the officers came to evict him, they found an outstanding warrant on him because he was, you know, in the process of being evicted didn't have any money to his name, really. Um, he wasn't able to afford uh, basically a $100 bail bond uh, to get out. So he ended up spending um, a month um, behind bars where he eventually died. Now, obviously, he had some serious medical issues, um, and, you know, it's, it, we can't say definitively whether or not, um, you know, the, the authorities and the medical officials there are responsible for his death. Um, but I think the real uh, issue there, in addition to the outstanding questions about the quality of the medical care uh, that he received, is why was this guy um, behind bars in the first place? If he had had any means whatsoever, um, he would never have been in that situation for such a such a minor charge. And indeed, you know, if he had been in a different jurisdiction or a different part of the country, smoking pot in your own home isn't going to be something um, that would uh, involve the police at all. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so I mean, there's just huge discrepancies and differences, and, you know, a lot of the um, issues that uh, we have in the criminal justice system are really tied uh, to someone's relationship with money. That's really one of the uh, determining factors of, uh, of what sort of justice someone receives. Well, that's terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we know it, but, you know, hearing it is something different. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, Ryan. I want to follow up and talk more about this, you know, related to the war on drugs and are we changing our opinions on these kinds of cases. 
Hey, America, this is Leslie Marshall. Share your opinion with me by calling me at 888-6-LESLIE. Don't have a phone handy? Then email us your opinion. Go to our website at www.lesliemarshall.us. on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hey folks, good afternoon once again. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in this afternoon for Leslie Marshall. Having a damn good time doing it. Uh, We've had some great conversations. We've talked some politics We've talked uh, some NRA. We're talking right now with the justice reporter, senior justice reporter, I should say, at the Huffington Post, Ryan Riley. Uh, Ryan, you with us? I am. Glad you're still here, man. Thank you. Um, so we were talking, I was, you know, about that case. Um, and you hear other cases like that where someone's arrested for some sort of petty crime and they don't have $100 or $50 or $10 and, and they end up in prison. And, I mean, it, these cases are all terrible. Um, but I'm thinking right now about the drug-related ones because obviously we're having somewhat of a shift going on in the country. I'm sitting in a state right now in Ohio where they've uh, they passed medicinal marijuana only a few months ago. I think it was in either May or June. Pennsylvania did the same a few months before that. Those are two pretty big states. Um, you now have, I think, more than half of the states in the country who've done this. I mean, do you, do you as a, from a criminal justice perspective, there still are these insane cases like the one we just talked about, but you see us overall hopefully heading in that direction. Is that a trend or is that just some liberal states, you know, winding it high? Yeah, I think this is going to be essentially a state-by-state sort of issue for for foreseeable future. I don't see or anticipate any uh, federal uh, legislation coming forward there. Um, but I mean, you know, I think that when you talk to law enforcement officials, and there's really been no evidence of in the states that have gone forward with it that there's been any um, sort of negative, uh, real negative law enforcement repercussions. Um, it's just really not the case. Um, so. You know, and uh, you know, for so for a drug with marijuana, I don't think you're going to um, really see any uh, real um, real negative consequences. And it's sort of uh, it's sort of positive development for people who want um, it legalized across country. Yeah, I mean, so there is a libertarian contingent in the Republican Party. Certainly, I've seen like Dana Rohrabacher is one who's come out in favor of legal. I think legalizing marijuana, certainly medicinal. Good, I think he sponsored a bill. You think um, I, one doesn't know what Donald Trump stands for for one day or the next, so I'm not going to try to figure it out. But if Hillary Clinton wins, and uh, and there's you've got Rand Paul, I think about also as kind of that that contingent um, in the Senate. Do you think that there's a chance that at the very least uh, it could be decriminalized on, on a federal level? You know, I think that more realistically what we're going to see is a continuation of sort of the approach that the Obama administration has, uh, took in recent years, which is basically not prioritizing these cases um, on the federal level. Um, 
So obviously there's going to be some issues with um, with the restrictions on marijuana and the, and the study of marijuana uh, that, are, that are going to be held back on the federal level. But probably from a prosecutorial standpoint, we're basically just going to end up in a situation where um, a Clinton administration probably wouldn't pursue those cases aggressively, would sort of, uh, if, if it's legal on the state level, uh, would sort of not pursue, uh, not go after people who are operating legally um, under state law. Um, I think that's probably likely for the near future what we're going to see, just because I think that that's probably, you know, that waging that battle in terms of federal legislation would be a massive undertaking, and I think that they would probably conclude that they could just be more effective by um, just sort of deciding what cases to prioritize on their own. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, do you also think on some of the – so let's talk about a harder drug. Let's talk about heroin, which is reaping, you know, havoc here. In Ohio, it's also in a lot of the, the middle of the country. I shouldn't say that. It is really everywhere as it's made its comeback. Do you think, I mean, I've seen some indication that, that mentality has changed a little bit from the just lock them up and throw away the key to realizing it's, it is a public health crisis, it is a disease. And in, some, in many cases now, with, with, we're prescribing people really the sort of, you know, the, the legal form of heroin, uh, for, you know, pharmaceuticals, where, when they hurt themselves, when they're, obviously when they're injured, and then they become hooked to this. Do you, do you see maybe us slowly changing, I hope, uh, in a direction of, of maybe treating this as a disease it is as opposed to kind of throwing people in prison and just assuming, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll probably be off drugs and get better, which never seems to work. In some ways, but it's it's really spotty. I mean, you basically have to have. It depends on your local leadership, which is why a lot of these local um, elections and and uh, are so essential because it's you know it's basically up to whether it's basically really up to them ultimately. If you have someone in a position who wants to take a sort of different approach to it um, or is open to sort of new ideas about how to look at things and how to you know whether it be drug courts or whether it be different um, ways of sort of addressing uh, the issue that doesn't necessarily just involve um, throwing people, you know, in, in prison. Um, right. Because, I mean, there's huge discrepancies between, you know, just how people are punished for drug crime, for the same drug crimes, just depending on the jurisdiction they're in across the country, where you have, you know, um, certain rural, more rural, typically, jurisdictions that end up really um, incarcerating at extremely high uh, levels and end up putting people away for a much longer time than if someone, someone who may have got caught um, in, a, in a different system where maybe there's a drug court set up and maybe there's, you know, an opportunity for them to sort of uh, avoid consequences that will... Um, you know, impact them for the rest of their life. So, I mean, yeah, from from marijuana to the situation with heroin, it really does sound like uh, pretty clearly you're saying here that we're looking at this more as a state issue in terms of how people are treated, what's legalized, what's decriminalized, how long you're spending in prison. It's really, even beyond state, it seems like you're saying jurisdiction, because obviously you may be in a state that has many, I mean, let's use Ohio, where you've got Cincinnati and Columbus and Cleveland that are very different than some of the more rural counties. And so you expect that to continue for a while, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's probably what we're going to see for the foreseeable future, just because I think there's so many, there's still going to be a divide on this, and I think it's going to take a while for people to sort of, you know, come around to that that idea. And it's still sort of a risky thing for people to do in terms of, um, changing up the just the way people are punished in general right because i mean there's still politicians are sort of worried about that that sort of outlier case that 
um, you know, someone who might have gotten, who might have, you know, been diverted from court or something will end up uh, committing some sort of horrible crime down the road, and that would be, and it'll sort of be blamed on, um, you know, the fact that they might have been able to sort of take a different path that allowed them to avoid avoid incarceration at some point. Um, you know, it's the same thing we sort of see with clemency issues, where you know the Obama administration is sort of very worried about um, releasing anyone um, who might down the line potentially. Um, you know, commit a crime that could be sort of um, that sort of sort of ruin that um, for other people in the long term. Gotcha. Well, we've got one minute left. I've got a quick question I want to ask you. Do you um, do you see uh, obviously with with the big decision by the federal government in terms of uh, private prisons? What are your thoughts on that in the future? Do we see their use declining, perhaps? To a certain extent, but I mean, a lot of that is on the state level, right? and there's also a lot of um, a lot. Of, it's used for it's still really being used for uh, on the federal level for immigration detention. Um, so I think that. And the also sort of trend that we're seeing is that a lot of these companies are getting involved, are sort of diversifying, getting involved in other parts of the justice system that aren't just necessarily private prisons, you know. Right, yeah, it seems that they're playing the music. I guess that means they're kicking us off. Listen, thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate Want a free podcast of Leslie? It's as easy as going to www.lesliemarshallshow.com. One last time, good afternoon, folks. This is Cliff Schechter. I'm here filling in for Leslie Marshall. This is indeed the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, great conversation with Ryan Riley just now on the state of our criminal justice system. In some ways, it's changing. We're going to switch back a little bit now to politics, presidential politics, the insanity that uh, is gripping our nation right now. I'm lucky enough to have a good friend, an Emmy award-winning broadcaster, from uh, MSNBC, you may remember him filling in for Keith Oberman or Chris Matthews or others, and most recently uh, at Al Jazeera, David Schuster, or Al Jazeera America, I should have said. David Schuster is with me. Are you here, David? Uh, I am here, Cliff. It is great to be with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. How are you? Um, you know, hanging in there. It's a beautiful day in New York City, so all, all is well today. <laughs> It's a strange thing for me. I'm used to the you being the one asking the questions, but now I have to <laughs> query you on various uh, items. Yeah, the, so, uh, the, 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 it requires the other skill set of being able to uh, to dodge the question and still convince people that you have somehow answered it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to work on trying to get you not to do that as you try to remain the objective reporter that you are uh, and not the sort of uh, the guy who can't hold his emotions together like me. Um <laughs> <laughs> so you cr- created quite a stir the other day. Um, you put, you tweeted out, and I know this from knowing you that when you tweet things out, you have a source. You're you're not um, mm-hmm. like some of these other people that tweet out what they happened to dream about the night before. And you tweeted out after the the pneumonia incident with Hillary Clinton that there actually was talk of replacing her. I'm I'm fascinated by that just because it seems that pneumonia, while not a pleasant thing, is something one can get over. So um, what, what, what was going on there? Yeah, so I would say on uh, Sunday and Monday and all the years that I've been covering a party uh, and members of a party, whether it's the Republican Party or Democratic Party, I have never seen so people so infuriated and so distrustful of their presidential candidate as the Democrats were on Sunday and Monday of Hillary Clinton. Wow. And the reason is because there were... 
essentially, I mean, look, Hillary Clinton and her top staff keep the, kept the pneumonia to them. Uh, they didn't disclose to anybody, but they also did not disclose to anybody part of the Democratic National Committee. And they didn't even disclose when, for those eight and a half hours, when the video was running nonstop of Hillary Clinton fainting and being essentially lifted into the van. And so for all those eight and a half hours when everybody across the country is wondering, gosh, is she okay? What happened? Even the Democratic National Committee was kept out of the loop. And then the DNC, the top people there, everybody there, in fact, had to find out about the pneumonia through the news media. So they were. Why do you think that is, David? That 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 she would not tell. I mean, I, I, I can look. She's got a very adversarial relationship with the press. I think there's blame to go around. Certainly, she definitely can be more secretive than she should be at times. But I think after some of the whitewater. Uh, and, and the many years of some of these things coming up that ended up being nothing, I can kind of understand on some level. But why with the DNC? Why would she not tell them what's going on? And, and certainly other people around her campaign, why would she not tell them what's going on? Do you well, have I any insight? Into, I mean, uh, there have been a lot of things that with the Clinton campaign where she's kept it to a very small number of advisors and number of people. And maybe there's a sense that not only can she not trust the media, and that she feels that the media is always out to get her, um, but I think she feels that there are some people who might be supporting her who also somehow cannot be trusted or don't deserve to, to know certain things that she considers to be private. Um, I mean, that's her point of view. I would say that what has happened is it's backfired, because then on Sunday and Monday you have members of the Democratic National Committee who – you know, generally supportive of Hillary Clinton, even the Bernie Sanders people have come around who now were infuriated, don't trust her, and were telling me, gosh, you know, we don't know for sure. Is there another shooter drop that's in all this? And there's complete pandemonium beyond the scenes at the DNC with people wondering, what is the process? What do we, what do, we do here? So there were a series of phone calls and meetings and emails and conference calls and texts and all sorts of stuff between members of the Democratic National Committee to make sure that everybody understood what the process was in terms of if somebody has to drop out from being the nominee. And and there were some people who had to be reminded that the DNC really doesn't have any role in terms of deciding whether somebody should be kicked off, um, that, that once you get past the convention, the nominee gets to decide, and they can be on death's doorstep, and there's not much a party can do to remove them from the ticket. That person has to decide themselves, okay, I'm withdrawing. So there was an education yeah. process for a lot of members of the DNC about that. And then there was an education process for a lot of members of the DNC about, okay, if Hillary Clinton for some reason were to decide that she needs to get off the ticket for whatever reason, what's the process? Uh, and so that was a pretty, it was a pretty intense 48, 72 hours. That, that sounds pretty intense. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm still having trouble. I had a great conversation with someone, a very, very smart political uh, analyst earlier, Jordan Carp. I'm still, you know, it, it's hard for me to get past the fact that that Donald Trump still, with the sheer magnitude of things he's said and done, um, I mean, again, I have to almost look at myself and say, am I, you know, maybe I, I'm so biased it's hard for me to understand, um, but. When you see, you know, when you see some of this, do you think that that it's some of these reasons, like what just happened, what you're talking about, that has kept this race closer than it otherwise would be? Because, I mean, and, and maybe the media has some role in that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, as as somebody who's worked both, you know, in sort of quote unquote the elite media and worked on other parts of the media. You know, what what you know what level what part of this do you think is is a is maybe caused by the 
the Hillary uh, Clinton campaign and what part by the media or maybe what part is just uh, we've got lots of people in the country that seem to like uh, a strong man. I don't know. That's a, that's a great, uh, great question. Um, I would say a part of it is self-inflicted from the Clinton campaign. And I think, look, even my Democratic friends have suggested that they, I mean, they should be bearing Donald Trump. This, this race should not be close, and it probably wouldn't be close had it not been for Hillary Clinton's own missteps. Either, you know, whether you consider the missteps not coming clean about her emails and her private server or, you know, stuff the foundation was doing or whatever it is. Um, there's sort of a habit of the Clintons through the years to try to disclose only when necessary. And sometimes it comes back to, to bite them. But here's the other thing that I, that I think you put your finger on regarding the media. I think the media doesn't have the ability to go very deep on stuff. And when the media, I think, focuses very heavily on personality, I think what happens then is a lot of the country feels like the, they can't really trust the media because so many people are concerned about their own economic anxieties or what's going to happen in the future economically. So, And what I mean is you know, there's not an in-depth conversation. So when people hear Donald Trump say, I'm going to make America great again, I'm going to bring back jobs by you know cutting new trade deals, you and I can look at that and say, well, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, his right. parents are not going to bring those jobs back and whatnot. But most of the media doesn't sort of probe that. They just sort of, you know, and most of the public hears, oh, Donald Trump's going to do something to protect jobs. Well, what is Hillary Clinton going to do to protect jobs? You and I can go into chapter and verse about um, raising the minimum wage or about right. pay for equal work, but it doesn't become quite as simple uh, as Donald Trump is making it, and therefore I think a lot of Americans now probably cannot identify what Hillary Clinton would do, would do, do to you, protect jobs. And so, Do you think that's still a major Democratic problem? I mean, I'm not asking you to be a partisan here, which you're not. I'm asking you to sort of look at it from the, from the angle of a reporter, which is the Republicans still, and I don't understand this, I mean, obviously Hollywood is a big largely democratic group so are trial lawyers they're two groups that are very very talented at telling stories telling narratives mm -hmm. right somehow the democratic party i mean if you, i were to ask you what donald trump stands for whether you like it or loathe it you know what it is whereas if i asked right. you what is hillary clinton running on you know yeah you've you've named a number of policies minimum wage and this and that but there isn't those those few sort of buzzwords or slogan or one or two policies that she constantly repeats and i think that that becomes a problem with Democrats a lot. I, I, tell me if I, uh, I mean, I may be wrong. I don't know. Tell me what you think. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's that, you know, the Republicans, Donald Trump is winning the politics, even if you and I and a lot of people might think that his policies should, you know, are no match for Hillary Clinton. So what I mean is, yeah, you're absolutely right. You say, what does Donald Trump stand for? He stands for, you know, building a wall, um, bringing jobs back, and, and not getting, in, you know, not being involved in military interventionism, being a little more isolationist. I mean, that's the sort of the thrust of it. You ask people, what are the basics about Hillary Clinton? And I think people struggle. Uh, and that, again, <laughs> gets to, you know, we I, I can tell people chapter and verse why, you know, Donald Trump's, you know, even making a wall is not going to solve the immigration issue or really get at the the main thrust of it, but it doesn't matter because people see him as, oh, he's a man of action because that's what he's going to do. And I don't think people have that same sense about Hillary Clinton. And the mistake I would say that Hillary Clinton's campaign is making, and I think also some of the media, is a lot of people think, well, this is an election about do we want somebody, are we more angry about words or are we more interested in actions? And 
I think most of the electorate, you know, doesn't really care that much about, you know, the misogynistic, racist, homophobic language Donald Trump uses. They want to know what's he going to do for me and my family. And as a result, there's Hillary Clinton saying he's misogynistic, he's racist, and that sort of people like, yeah, yeah, we get that, but we don't care about that. Our priority is what is his action going to be to protect my family? And that's where I think Hillary Clinton comes up short. So it may be um, that he's our, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, I hope I don't get Leslie in trouble, but he's our a-hole. He may be an a-hole, but he's our a-hole kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. (laughs) Sorry to put you in a corner there, David. No, that's all right. I, I think people, um, the way it was described to me, and I was talking to some, some folks the other day, and they said, look, you know, this is an election where the actions mean, or mean more than words. And, and what do we mean by that? Well, if you look at the words, you know, the, the words that Donald Trump has used are insulting and infuriating and racist and whatnot. But if you look at, well, what are the actions that Donald Trump has, you know, done? It's a little murkier, whereas if you say, well, what are the actions for Hillary? Well, you know, Hillary is a top diplomat. She, you know, is associated with voting for the Iraq war when she was a senator. She, you know, some of her stuff as Secretary of State was not successful. People look at the actions in terms of how she, you know, put the private server in the private email, and, and that's a problem. And so you compare people's anger over actions versus anger over words, and in some sense there's a little more anger at Hillary Clinton, whether we think it's fair or not. Very interesting. We've got a break coming up, David, but I want to come back and continue on this in a moment. Sure. Leslie Marshall, not left, not right, just real talk. Leslie Marshall, when the truth matters. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. One last time, good afternoon, everybody. This is Cliff Schechter. I am filling in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're lucky to have with us Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist David Schuster. We're talking a little bit about the election What's going on out there, State of Cable News, and uh, I'm, hopefully David can help me understand all this. Are you still with us? <laughs> I'm still with you. Thanks, Cliff. <laughs> sure. Um, you, you know, you said earlier about um, lack of depth, right, which this, some of this seems to me to, to be an issue. Um, there, I mean, it, it seems like new things come out about Trump every single day. Uh, they, they, I don't think we're shocked by any of them anymore, although I have to say – Taking one hundred fifty thousand dollars of nine eleven money that was supposed to go to uh, to to victims uh, to small businesses that were victimized by nine eleven that goes even beyond where I thought Trump maybe would go. You know why? Do, I mean, why is it that we're talking about emails? I'm not saying that that Hillary Clinton and certainly the, the cover up being worse than the scandal. Some of the reactions, the secretive reactions, have been bad, but. You know, shouldn't I mean in a different era, maybe that era being four years ago, wouldn't somebody who had taken one hundred fifty thousand dollars that was supposed to go to nine eleven victims be like plastered on every media outlet constantly for the rest of the election? How is it that that is not something that we're even much hearing about? 
I think I think it would have been. I think part of the problem is, I mean, the Hillary email story has been a story for what almost eighteen months now. Uh, and in some ways, in this day and age, in order for things to break through, it's almost like that has to be in the news for eighteen months in order for people to you know pay attention. Um, I think the news media should be you know plastering the Donald Trump nine eleven stuff from now until whenever. But even two months of that, I'm not so sure is really gonna breakthrough. Um, so as a result, I, I, just, I think some of these issues, in a sense, are, are awash. Where I would suggest, I think, that this election is really going to turn is uh, there's, there was a study that came out that found out, like, that said from Oxford, that something like 47% of all of the jobs are going to disappear over the next 20 years because of automation and technology. And but some of the jobs that are going to be created, we don't even have names for it. And there is such, I think, economic anxiety that a lot of people have over their economic future. And, and mm-hmm. you know, whether you're a truck driver, your truck driver jobs are going to disappear over five years or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think people, as a result, are feeling incredibly, incredibly anxious. And the person who's going to win this election is going to be the candidate who speaks to those economic fears. And we saw, you know, Bernie Sanders did a marvelous job of speaking to that during the primaries on the Democratic side. I think Donald Trump did an effective job of speaking to that, even though his policies to me don't make any sense. I spoke to some of that on the Republican side, and again, that's, I think, the, the key between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, is Hillary Clinton has, you know, what, seven weeks to convince the American people that with these incredible changes that are coming very quickly to all of us, that she's the one that can be trusted to help guide us all through it and guide the nation through it. Uh, if she does that, she's going to win. I don't think it'll be close. If she doesn't make that case, then I think it's, you know, I think it's um, an even ball game, and that's, you know, that'll frighten a lot people it will i mean i know that you know much superior ground game just because donald trump didn't even try until recently we just got our first office here in hamilton county real office uh for donald trump in the last week hillary has i don't know half dozen a dozen just here um key swing area of a key swing state i think also it's been pretty clear that as you pointed out how that story was handled with pneumonia, especially with Trump planting those seeds of she, that she had a health problem, did damage. I mean, I've seen now three polls in a row that has her down in, in Ohio. Um, I've seen uh, Iowa, where she's actually, you know, gone from uh, maybe a point down or tied to like well down. It seems, to, and, and even right now, if you look at where things are, she might she might still squeak through. But I think you make a lot of sense there. I think it, it's going to go back to equilibrium somewhat. I think this is definitely a low point. Uh, how she does in the debates, but partially how she does in the debates is not just sort of stylistically. It's also that I think that she makes these points that you're talking about, which is, you know, show that vision. Yeah, and I think the, the challenge, not only does she need to show the vision, but, you know, the challenge in a debate, and again, this is something that's it's not fair, but it's reality of television debates, is that television debates are not won by having the best sort of recitation of wonkish talking points. Television debates are won on charisma, who owns the stage, who has the most sort of moments, um, and sort of an overall vibe that people have. And, and I think where, you know, 
Hillary Clinton has to be careful is that, you know, Donald Trump, at least, you know, when he had 10 other people on the stage, he was he was killing them in the Republican primaries. Can Hillary Clinton bring some energy and charisma? She's going to win on content. I guarantee that she's going to win on right. content. But that's not enough for her to win the debate. And I think if the Clinton campaign is cognizant of that and realizes she needs the moment, she needs to show some charisma and personality, and she needs to connect the reason for her candidacy to all these economic insecurities that people have, she does that, she'll walk out of the debates and she'll be fine. If she doesn't, then it's, you know, this is going to be a close race. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the danger is what we saw happen with Al Gore in 2000, which is mm. wanting to go in and, and show that you know a lot more um, it doesn't necessarily win it. And sometimes it actually comes off making you look like the kid who knew it all in class. And again, we're not talking about the way I think it should be, the way we're talking about what you were saying, the way that it is. So it's how to, to come in. And, and do a sort of tour de force and show that you know this much more than him, but do it in a way that connects with people. Do it as part of larger themes that connect with people emotionally as opposed to just a recitation of facts and names of foreign leaders. Um, and I'm hoping they get that because uh, I do think in yeah, the end she does have a – go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, and, and hopefully Hillary Clinton's makeup does not make her look like a clown the way <laughs> the problem is. Well, yes. <laughs> I, I have to hope they've gotten better technology in makeup applications since then. Um, okay, so we've got a minute, David. So I need to know, everybody needs to know, now that uh, Al Jazeera America, you're no longer there, where, where do we get to see you next? Uh, great. So uh, I'm working on a couple projects. So there is a, a group called WorkingNation.com, a foundation that's focused on the future of the American workforce. Uh, it's a non partisan nonprofit that is just putting out a lot of media products, uh, workingnation.com. You can go and take a quiz and see if you are future-proof. I've been doing some uh, videos and roundtables and stuff. Cool. And then a couple other uh, broadcast projects that are that are in the works and talking with people. So most important, as you can relate, uh, post-Altazero, just spending time with the family, <laughs> enjoying being a dad. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful yeah. little girl. You'd better spend a lot of time with her while you can. Well, you know, we, we you're good. marriage all set, Clev. So when your sons are older and the, the little girl's older, we're, you and I will sit back and just, you know, let them go. <laughs> we're taking care of that. Thank you so much for being on, David. Great talking to you again. Uh, it's a pleasure, Clev. Great job on the show today and uh, great listening to you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much, man. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.